really pious among you. I say we're going to talk about your prayer life, and you just get a warm, fuzzy feeling. And you say, man, those are just the most wonderful hours of my day. But then there's the rest of us. And I say, we're going to talk about your prayer life, and you have other feelings. For some, it's feelings of guilt and shame. Um, maybe it's feelings of frustration, right? Because every time I sit down to pray, you know, I think about the grocery list and the clogged sink that I need to take care of and all these random things that just enter in. Or, or maybe you feel regret. Or maybe you feel just inept and I don't know how to do this. And so this morning, I want to fix all of those problems for you and offer you 10 steps to have a great, um, no, not really. Um, I bring up prayer, and I titled the sermon Prayer Matters, because Paul brings up prayer and gives it a, a pretty prominent position in his letter to Timothy. The last few weeks, we've looked at chapter 1, and where Paul has laid the groundwork for the problem that's going on in the Ephesian church and the fact that he's leaving Timothy there to address it. And so we come to this passage this morning, starting in chapter 2, and prayer is Paul's first action step for Timothy to address this problem. Uh, so we're going to read this passage. So if you're able, stand for the reading of God's word. First uh, Timothy uh, chapter 2 the first seven verses, this is God's word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. May God add his blessing to the reading and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible and authoritative word. Let's go together in prayer right now. Father, we pray for your help, for your Spirit's illumination of this passage. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you shine a white hot light on this word that we might see Jesus, that we might see him in all the beauty and the glory of the gospel, and that we might be changed and transformed even as we behold him there. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So here is the sermon about prayer that's not so much about prayer. Um, prayer opens the door, if you will, for the things that, that Paul needs uh, to say and the matters he needs to address. And they're all connected to prayer, but the meat of the passage, if you will, concerns the things 
behind and underneath and, and around the prayers, and, and I think that will make more sense to you as we go along. Uh, the big idea, I think, from this passage, and I've got it there for you in the outline in your worship folder, uh, broken up down through that page, is that Paul wants us, he wants Timothy, he wants the Ephesian Christians, he wants you and me by extension to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because there's only one gospel. So let, let's look at those three ideas, uh, and we'll start in verse 1 because that's a good place to start. First of all, I urge that supplications, all right, so, so when we need something, I urge that prayers, when we're just talking to God, I want intercessions when other people need things, and I want thanksgivings when we're just being grateful to the Lord for His many blessings. I want all kinds of prayers to be offered up. Now, right off the bat, that's interesting to me because of the context that we've already laid down from chapter 1 of what's going on in, in Ephesians, uh, in the church at Ephesus. Paul's leaving Timothy there to address this problem of teachers teaching a different doctrine, teachers teaching things that are sidelining the gospel and are causing people to doubt and be uncertain and to, to speculate. And so the first action step then is to pray all kinds of prayers. That this is the first thing that, that Paul wants to happen tells us a lot about the importance of prayer to Paul, and rightly so, because prayer is such a good barometer of what's going on in our lives individually, but also in our, in our corporate life, in our body life together. Our prayers reveal a lot. You know, how often are we praying? How often are you praying? Um, prayerlessness is pretty revealing right? Uh, prayerlessness could tell us a lot of things. It could tell us that we are self-sufficient, or it could just tell us that we're despondent, right? Uh, things are, are so bad that we just don't think there's any hope or any use in actually praying. We're either so dependent upon ourselves or we're so hopeless that, that we're not going to bother. But prayerfulness could tell us something else, that we are actually deeply dependent on our Father and turning to Him often to meet our needs and supply our needs and, and for our help. Prayerfulness tells us that, that we've got a deep faith in the Father and His goodness and His ability. Prayerfulness tells us that we are desperate and that's not a bad thing. So the frequency of our prayers is important, but also the content of those prayers, right? The actual requests that we make reveal what we value most. So are we, are we praying all the time for healing and comfort and safety and blessing, right? Nothing wrong with those types of prayers, but do we ever move beyond those types of prayers? Do we ever move beyond the prayers of just praying for our desired outcome? 
Do we pray for God's glory to be revealed? Do we pray for his kingdom to advance? Even in difficult situations, right? Well, we, you know, our prayers are often, oh, well, Lord, take away the pain, take away the sickness, right? And again, nothing wrong with praying that. But our prayers can really become lopsided if that's all we ever pray about and if the alleviation of pain is the only possible outcome in our mind that will work. What if God wants to do something else? God could want to glorify himself through healing or God could want to glorify himself by showing up in the midst of the pain and carrying you through the pain. He has multiple options for bringing glory to himself. How often we're praying, who we're praying for, is it, is it just us? Right? Or are we so focused on ourselves? Are we praying for others? What we're praying for, they're all very revealing. And some of the content of the prayers that Paul is encouraging are, are interesting. Verse 2, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. All right, Pray for these folks so that this will happen. Pray for leaders so that your life will look a certain way. And I thought about this quite a bit this week. You know, why should we pray for our rulers over us? Right? Well, well, at some level, it's just obvious Well, because we're commanded to. And if we're going to be obedient, we're going to do it. But I really struggled with the that right? That your life might look like this, peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified. So what is the relationship between these two things? Well, one possibility is, all right, well, I'm going to pray for my leaders in the hopes of getting a good product from them, right? I'm going to pray for my leaders in hopes of getting good government, and that'll lead to a good life. Well, about that. There's not a guarantee there that our praying for our leaders will result in good government or a good life. So I think there's got to be something more here. Especially if you consider the context of the time that this letter was written (laughs) and who the ruler was. When Paul was encouraging this, right, the emperor was Nero. Infamous persecutor of Christians. So if Paul told folks then to pray for rulers and the result will be a quiet, peaceful, godly life and that guy is in charge, I think there's something more. And I think this could be it. When we pray for rulers, we're reminded of who put them there. We're reminded that Scripture says that there's no ruler in power that wasn't placed there by God. We're reminded that He is the sovereign ruling and reigning from the throne. 
And being reminded of that will, I guarantee, give you peace and will quiet your soul and will lead to a godly and a dignified life. Regardless of the quality of governance that we're actually getting from those in charge. But if we can remember he's on the throne and he's ruling and he's reigning, yeah, I can see some peace and some quiet and some calm resulting from that. I especially love this last word in this series of four. All right, so you're going to have a life that's peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified, or you may have it translated holy or even honest. And so I was reading someone much smarter than I was, um, and, and here's uh, what this, uh, this Greek scholar says. This last word in this series of four means the following stuff. It's a virtue that lies between two extremes. And it's, so it's in between caring to please no one and desperately trying to please everyone. How exhausting. It's the ability to perform one's duties as a, as a citizen while showing that the dignity is not from this earth, but from heaven. So there's a wonderful tension and a wonderful balance present here when we're praying for rulers, when we're acknowledging and remembering that God's on the throne, that he's ruling and reigning. It helps us to do the seemingly impossible, to live in the tension between this life and the life to come. Right? Uh, to, to live here but not strive desperately to make this home because we have another home. Right? And so if we can come to a place where we live in that type of freedom, we're going to be so much more useful to others in ministry. Right? Just practically speaking. Right? If I'm not desperately trying to please everybody or desperately trying to make this world my home, I have so much more energy to give my life away to others. And I think that that really does tie in here if we look at, then at verse 3. Right? This is good. Right? Praying these types of prayers for all these people, especially for our leaders, and ending up with this kind of life, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Why? Because he wants folks to be saved. He's God, our Savior. We've seen that already in, in the very first verse of this letter. And now we see it again. It's good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. He wants folks to be saved. He wants us to be able to give our lives away in ministry and in service to folks. That's his deep desire. And that's the reason why this different doctrine that was being taught in this church in Ephesus was such a big deal because it was not the truth. And God wants people to know the truth and to come to a saving knowledge of that truth in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, if you're trying to follow that outline in the worship folder, here's kind of where we're making our way into the second point because each point just kind of bleeds over into the next. We're praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And throughout this passage, there's a huge emphasis on all, right? Four different times, and it affects both the prayers that we pray, but also salvation. So Paul's really hammering this allness throughout this passage four different times. Verse 1, prayers are offered for all people. 
Verse 4, God desires all people to be saved. Verse 6, Jesus is given for a ransom for all. And then in verse 7, Paul's appointed a teacher of the Gentiles, right? So no longer just the Jewish folks are, are in view here, but all nations. Everything is, is in view now. And so a, a few things about this, this emphasis on all, I think. Part of the errors in the teaching that were going on in this church was, was a restriction of the gospel, a restriction of who God's people could really be, of who this was intended and meant for, and the types of hoops that you had to jump through in order for this to work. And Paul's saying, no, it's not just a select few, it's all. It's all. It's not a narrowing of who God's people are, but in fact, as, as Paul has shown through the development of Christ's coming, this is for all the nations. There will be people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb who was slain. And so I think if we have that shift in mind from God's people are, are a small, select group of folks to, well, in fact, and as, as it has been all along, God had intended through that small group of folks to bless all the nations of the world. That has been his plan all along. And so if we have that in mind, that helps us a bit, I think, when we get to this difficulty in verse 4. There's a little bit of a difficulty here, right? Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? So what does it mean by God desires all people to be saved? Let me start with two things that it doesn't mean. Okay? Two things that it, that it just could not mean and then jive with the rest of Scripture. It does not mean, number one, universalism. It does not mean that every single person will, in fact, be saved. You just have to read the rest of Scripture. You see lots and lots uh, of, of scriptural proof that show that that's not how it's going to be. You read that, that broad is the way that leads to destruction and, and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. Right? Uh, we, we read of, of many, in fact, who will face judgment, that all those who are not trusting in Christ, atoning and sacrificial work, they will themselves face the punishment uh, for their sins. Um, so it's not universalism. It's not that everybody will be saved in the end, one way or another. But it's also not that God is sitting up in heaven, pouting and frustrated that he didn't get his way. It can't be that either. Well, he desires all to be saved. But there are forces outside his control, and so he doesn't get what he wants. Right? That's not it at all. Because Scripture is full of evidence that God actually gets what he wants all the time. Right? He is God and there is no other. Right? Our God is in heaven, Psalm 115.3, and he does all that he pleases. Right? God gets his way every day single time. There's no one more powerful. There's no one who can thwart his plan or his will. 
all right? So he's not frustrated because things are turning out differently than he wanted. So it's not universalism. And it's not that God is frustrated and pouting because he didn't get what he wants. Then what is it? Then what does it mean for God to desire all people to be saved? And I'll disappoint a few of you, I guess, because I'm not going to put this in a nice little box and tie a pretty bow on top and say, here, here's what you need to believe. Right? But I will give you a couple of things to think about and to consider in light of all of Scripture as you try to figure this out and come to a conclusion for yourself. The first is what I've already mentioned, an aspect in which I think the all here is referring, in fact, to all types of people, all types of nationalities and ethnicities, Without barrier or distinction, this gospel has been made available to all, and the Lord desires to save people from all walks of life, from all nations, from all peoples. See, it's not just the Jews anymore. It's opened. Paul himself is is a preacher to the Gentiles, to all the nations. So it's not just who you thought it was. It's not even to just who you think is a likely candidate. Right? God desires all people to be saved. Right? Not just those who you think would make a good Christian. Right? Saul of Tarsus would have been excluded from likely candidates. Just like today, ISIS terrorists are excluded from our likely candidates. And maybe your neighbor or your co-worker you've excluded from your list of likely candidates no god desires that all would be saved and so here's here's something that's a little bit more complex what i think this all is referring to and it's wrapped up in the character and the identity of god that we've already seen that from verse three in chapter two and from verse one in chapter one he's god our savior that's who he is By essence, he is a God who saves. He delights to extend grace and mercy and to save all who will put their faith in his one and only son. It pleases him to do that. Right? And and here's where it gets a little tricky. And we've got to hold a couple of things as being true at the same time that he is pleased to save does not mean that he will not also be pleased one day to pour out his wrath on all who've not believed in his one and only son. He'll be pleased then because that will be a perfect expression of his justice and his righteousness. And he wouldn't do it if it didn't please him because he's God and he always gets what he wants every single time. And so we've got to hold both of these things at the same time that he is pleased to save. He's a God who saves and he desires, I don't think we have any problem saying that he desires that all will be saved. And so I'll let you continue to wrestle with that and And bring that to some resolution in your mind. 
We're to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because there's only one gospel, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God. There is. There's one God. That, that comes from the great Shema of, of Old Testament Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's a great foundation. But you can't stop there because it's not just monotheism that's enough. It's not just believing that there is one God that is enough. The, the Jews believe that there is one God. Even Muslims are, are monotheists. So it's not enough. The key is to say there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men. That's the key. One God and one mediator. So what is a mediator? Um, it's a go-between, right? A mediator goes between and, and settles a conflict. Settles a conflict between two parties. And there is a conflict between God and man. There is a conflict that needs resolution. There's an issue to settle between the holy and righteous creator of the universe and sinful, rebellious us. And it is such a serious conflict and, and of, of such a deep nature that there could only be one mediator who could ever resolve it. And Christ is uniquely qualified to be our mediator because of his person and because of his work, because of who he is and because of what he's done. He alone was God and man. That's a big deal. That's why Paul points it out here. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. It would take both his humanity and his divinity to resolve this conflict between these two parties. And how he resolves it is mind-blowing. I'm not sure if you've ever participated in a mediation before or not, maybe um, in some civil matter or, or a divorce proceeding or maybe something at work or in the legal realm. But when a mediator comes in as the go-between, he's trying to achieve compromise. Need for this side to give a little bit. Need for this side to give a little bit. You've got to come to some type of a meeting in the middle. But not this mediator and not this conflict. Because the parties in this conflict are so unequally matched. You've got sinful us on the one side of this conflict, and we ain't got nothing to give. We got nothing to bring to the mediation table. And the other side can't give anything because he can't compromise who he is. His holiness and his justice and his righteousness. And since this conflict can't be resolved by each side giving a little and meeting in the middle, 
our mediator gives all. No mediation that you've ever been a part of in this life has the one coming to do the mediation making the biggest sacrifice. But that is the case here. Our mediator gives himself up as a ransom, as a payment to settle the debts that we owe to our holy and righteous God. He gives a ransom to release us from our captivity to sin and death. And we got another small problem to deal with. But that's okay. Because I think dealing with this small problem in verse 6 leads us to a very healthy place. It's another one of those all things. right? First it was God desires all to be saved. And now in verse 6 we see that Christ gave himself up as a ransom for all. And so Christians are roughly split into two groups about what all means here and what this must look like. And so the question boils down to this, for whom did Christ die? And I'm going to address this question in a very abbreviated fashion. But here's group one. So two groups. Group one would say, all right, well, Christ died on the cross paying the penalty for the sins of every single person, past, present, and future. Group two looks at it a little differently. Group two says Christ died on the cross specifically for those who would place their faith in him. Those of whom, uh, according to Ephesians 1, God Uh, chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, as you read the full counsel of God's word, which I encourage you to do, you will come across all kinds of verses that each group loves to latch onto and say, aha, I knew it. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. And the other side will grab hold of a verse and say, aha, I knew it. Christ's blood was poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Right? And you could just go back and forth all day long. Aha! Aha! All right. Search it out, right? And again, I'm not putting it in a box for you. I'm not tying a pretty little bow on top and handing it to you and saying, believe this. But I will give you what I think is a helpful question, and I will show you my cards on this but here's the helpful question what exactly was Christ doing as he died on the cross what what exactly was was happening there was was he making salvation possible or was he accomplishing salvation That's just what you need to wrestle with. What was he doing there? Did he open the door to the possibility of folks being saved? Or did he accomplish in actuality and in great certainty the salvation of all who would, through the course of history, place their faith and trust in him? Right? And so, I mean, clearly, I'm a 
minister in the Presbyterian Church of America, right? So I hold to this second group, this, this reformed historical understanding. I believe that that is the most biblical place to land at the end of the day after you consider all of the, the witness of Scripture. That when Christ died for his folks... He made salvation sure and certain. He secured it for us. And that when, in fact, on the cross, when he died and his last exclamation was, it is finished, not it is possible. Right? Now, let me end with this caution. Right? Because that's a nice theological debate. Right? It's important, right? But I need to end with this caution because even if the scope of Christ's atoning work is intended for those who will eventually place their faith in Christ, even if that scope is limited to that group of people, the scope of our proclaiming is in no way limited. The gospel goes forth to any and all who will hear. To the highways and the byways. To anybody who will listen to us for a few moments. The appeal and the call of the gospel goes out. Because we don't have the mind of Christ. We don't know who will and who won't. And so we have the command to go to all with great liberality and great freedom and in the end great hope, right? In the end great hope because we know that the Lord has set his affection on his people and those people will absolutely respond to the gospel. We're not going out there with some possibility of, gee, I hope somebody might. We know that many, in fact, will And so we take that gospel with great boldness and with great confidence because we know that he has a people out there that he set his affection on before the foundation of the world and he is drawing them to himself. Paul had that conviction. That's why he said in verse 7, I've been appointed a preacher or a herald or a proclaimer. I'm taking the message to any and all who will hear, and especially to the Gentiles. This, this opportunity has burst wide open now. It's not, not just the nation of Israel any longer. It's every tongue and tribe and language and nation. And so we simply proclaim and we wait and see who the Spirit is drawing to the Father that they might embrace Christ as He's freely offered in the Gospel. And perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps even this morning for the first time, you've come to a place where you've understood that God is God our Savior and He desires to save. And Christ is our our mediator in the way that only He could be as God and man. And as He gave Himself up as your ransom, paying your debt, setting you free. There's one God and there's one mediator. We've got to insist on that. If there's one God and one mediator, that means there are no other options. 
And so this is the gospel that we must proclaim and that we can proclaim and that we will proclaim. We're going to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because there's one gospel. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that you are God, our Savior, and that in all of who you are, holy and righteous and just, and yes, even a God of wrath, that you are also God, our Savior. And that it does please you to extend grace and mercy. It does please you through the work of your Spirit to draw men and women to embrace the Lord Jesus as he's freely offered in the gospel. Lord Jesus, we praise you for this unique way in which you became our mediator as only you could. And you, in fact, did give yourself up because we had nothing to offer. We had no means to resolve this conflict. And so you resolved it for us and you did it in your flesh. You did it by dying in our place. You did it by rising again from the dead. We praise you, O Christ, as our mediator this morning. We look to you in faith for our salvation. And we pray that even this morning, as we lift you up in our praises, as you're exalted, that you would, in fact, draw men and women to yourself. We pray in Christ's name and for your sake, Christ. Amen.